We're talking big food on this Consumer Goods Edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. And I am joined today by the one and only Vincent Shen. How are you today, sir? Hey, Sean. A lot of uh, very uh, current news to talk about today. Yeah, this is important because I eat food. And uh, I don't know, the industry's not doing so well, so I hope I start doing better. Depends how you look at it. Well, but. I, I, I know what you mean. Regardless. Um, so first and foremost, um, Cisco. Ah, yes. So the Cisco situation, uh, we're going to be talking about a bit of M&A in the food industry today. The uh, Who knew the U.S. government uh, was worried about competition so much in the uh, the food supplying space? <laughs> so, you know, on the one side, we're, it's going to be food distribution. Um, and on the other side, it's going to be more actual you know, makers of some of these packaged goods that we love, like my personal favorite, Slim Jims. Oh my but God. we'll go to that later. So really right now, uh, the big news is that uh, announced yesterday that Cisco, you know, had plans to purchase U.S. foods. Now we're talking about the number one and number two biggest broadline food distributors in the country. So they're really the only like bigger national players with the reach, large product portfolios to handle um you know, to be the top of the heap, essentially. And essentially, a federal district court judge sided with the FTC when the FTC sued to block the deal, even though that was kind of a split uh, decision, three to two among the commissioners themselves. Um, To their point, though, these are the number one and two largest food companies, right? Yes, exactly. Um, And beyond that, you have smaller competitors. And within the industry... um, you know, you also have like regional players and things along those, but these are the two biggest, and they would be joining to create an even even bigger. Did you come across what kind of market share the combined entity would have? Yes, actually, um, I have some. Uh, it's estimated that the combined entity would have controlled about seventy five percent of broadline food distribution. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you can take that as you want. From what I know about antitrust law, the government usually gets iffy in the forties and fifties. So, this does not surprise me at all. Um, so I'm, I'm also a little bit surprised by the split among the commissioners considering some of the, yeah. the numbers and the metrics behind this. You said it was three this. to two? Um, it was three to two. Got so, it. you know, the original deal was announced pretty over a year and a half ago at this yeah. point in December 2013, about $8 billion in value. So Cisco was going to pay that three and a half billion dollars split cash and stock, not, not in half, not 50, 50. And then they would take on a bunch of U S foods debt too. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in any merger deal, they're talking about synergies, efficiencies, cost cutting. Exactly. So they were thinking that maybe within a few years of integration, they'd be able to recognize at least $600 million annually in synergies. Right. Um, a lot of big benefits for them. I'm sure they would have better power with their better, you know, pricing power, with their suppliers, be able to potentially lower prices for the consumers. I'm sure they argued that as well. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of situations where, you know, there's a Cisco truck and a U.S. foods truck going to the same grocery store. And offices and in similar places where it all could have been integrated. Yeah. So So this combined entity is huge. Um, Like I said, market share side, estimated about 75 percent. Revenue side, they would have had $65 billion. Um, 
though they did make some concessions because, you know, right from the get-go, they were getting some pushback from the FTC. So they spent a lot of time working with the agency trying to figure out, hey, how can we, how can, what do we need to do for you to let us go through <laughs> with this deal? So they, in one of their overtures was they set up a side deal with Performance Food Group. It's kind of similar to like the Reynolds deal in tobacco, right. where they sold give a couple of the brands to, da, 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 da. to the number three player essentially. And so in this case, they had the side deal with Performance Food Group. They were going to take over um, eleven facilities that belong to U.S. Foods, and basically that you know those facilities had about four and a half billion dollars in annual revenue was supposed to help turn them into a stronger player after the acquisition. Obviously, all that's moot point now. Cisco's going to have to pay a breakup fee of $300 million to U.S. Foods and $12.5 million to Performance Foods. So uh, that's the situation now. They're, you know, they're backing out of the deal. It's been acknowledged that it's not going to happen. That's a big win for U.S. Foods right there. Um, yeah, so I was looking at the numbers for Cisco. U.S. Foods is, of course, private, so we couldn't really get a good look at them. But um, I, it doesn't surprise me that this deal fell through. And as a food consumer, I'm probably glad that one entity didn't control 75% of the market, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I do agree, though, that Cisco needed to do something to uh, juice the bottom line. Well, yeah. They, they, I mean, they're not a horrible business by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you look over the last five years, return on equity was awesome in 2010. You're about 32%. Those are like top, like that's top ten, you know, 5 10% of the S&P 500 numbers right there. And it's just been falling ever since. And now they're in the mid-teens. And all the while, um, net income's gone from $1.18 billion in 2010 down to $931 million in fiscal year 2014. But revenue's gone from 37 to $46 billion. I mean, this is... Everything's going the wrong way. <laughs> I'm really glad that you kind of put this these some of these numbers in front of me, Sean, because um, you know that revenue growth, at first, you're thinking... Oh man, like it's great. You, you got know. this big company. It's a thirty-seven billion dollar company in twenty ten. They're able to grow to forty six. You know, four considering five years their later. size, exactly. Yeah, are you know, it's not exactly a high growth industry. Right. So it looks great, but then you look at that bottom line. It's and it, yeah, you can see how things have, are slowing down the, for them, and they probably they wanted that boost in the arm. I think they needed to do something, and of course, you know, they got their hands slapped with this merger. So now I'm wondering, like, what are they going to do? Because they need to do something, and they're currently trading for uh, 22 and a half times forward gap earnings, according to uh, uh, Capital IQ estimates, which is a compilation of a bunch of analysts. And I'm kind of like, this. I mean, 22 times earnings is something that's not going to grow the bottom line much. I, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. So that definitely looks like a an iffy situation, though probably not quite as iffy as what we're talking about next. Yeah. So number two topic is ConAgra, and they are essentially throwing the towel in on something they paid five billion dollars for a couple of years ago. Um, there, this is basically a der- derivative of. Uh, the news that Jana Partners, a activist hedge fund, took a 7% stake in ConAgra, and they literally sent a letter to the board saying, yeah, we're going to shake you guys up. This isn't surprising. They had a, haven't even said how they're going to get rid of this private label business, but um, I'm interested to hear what we do know. So this is like really recent. It was just announced actually this morning, along with their fiscal fourth quarter earnings. Um, you know, Their earnings came in. They have some bright spots with two of their segments commercial and consumer foods. But then, like you mentioned, they made this uh, acquisition in that they integrated in about in early 2013, $5 billion. They're going to buy out Ralcor 
take out um, take on their private label food business, turn that into their their third major segment, and hopefully, you know, ride that growth wave. When I uh, when I heard this story and you told me what was happening, I would if you had just asked me yesterday, um, hey Sean, how do you how if you had to speculate? What would you say? Uh, how would you say ConAgra's private label business? You know, just making private label products for Target or just uh, all these grocery stores have sure. their own giant brand of ketchup and all that. Of course. How would you assume that you know they're they're doing? And I'm like, uh, pretty good. I that's like actually been one of the uh, changes I've seen over my lifetime at the grocery stores. There's more and more private label offerings. You've got Heinz ketchup, and you got the store brand ketchup. And 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't really the case. And I was just surprised that this this private label business is not doing well. Well, just in terms of an image thing, too, I feel like in the past when I was younger, we always shunned the private label brands, just not good quality, didn't look good, didn't look appealing on, compared to the, you know these big national brands. Then you realize there was no difference because you looked at the ingredients. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now it's like they've really stepped up uh, the way things are packaged, the quality, and now it's like pretty competitive. And an interesting kind of, re- I think, something that drove the popularity of the private label brands was you know the economic downturn, 2008, people were tight on money. And suddenly they're turning to these lower cost options. Right. So there was a lot of growth there. And I think that when ConAgra took on this deal, they saw it as, as hey, this is like an awesome avenue of growth that, we're, well, that we'll have. And what were you saying? The uh, private label brands generally enjoy profit margins of 10 to, 10, uh, 10 to 15% higher than the national brands for the. Yeah, in certain I mean, cases, they're, they're enjoying richer margins on these products too. So it seems like a no brainer. But the issue is, you know, it's not like these national brands are exactly sitting there and letting this. They're not just going to let this happen. Right. So they have narrowed that pricing different, that price gap significantly. So I, it's come down to the point where the growth for private label brands has stalled. And, people, and all of a sudden, sorry to interrupt, all of a sudden it's, if you're faced with like five cents more, you'll probably just buy the national brand. Exactly. So, you know, people do ultimately prefer to stick with that name brand and if that price gap's no longer there, or if it's not quite as big or appealing, then that's where they're seeing the struggles. Um, so, so they've already written down two billion dollars for this division, and they're just going to get rid of it completely. Ex- yeah, exactly. So the, you know they've taken, uh, like you said, two billion dollars in write downs. You know, impairment of goodwill, different charges, and overall, it's just been a disaster. They've had five straight quarters, including this most recently announced one, where sales for the private label segment have fallen. And, uh, you know, just for this most recent quarter, operating profit fell 30% year over year in the private label segment. So, just really struggling business. And the company is basically throwing in the towel, deciding that to dedicate all the resources that they've been funneling, trying to turn around this private label business to their two better performing segments being consumer and commercial foods. Do you think that's just an excuse? The whole we don't have the resources thing? Uh, excuse might not be right. I think it's an acknowledgement that basically they don't think they can do it. And okay. it's not a efficient use of of their resources. And as a result, you know, they've announced this divestiture. There's no other details yet how that's going to be happening. I'm sure and I'm really glad you brought up the the Jana partners because you know when their stake came out, seven point two percent in mid mid June. So just a couple weeks ago, a week or two ago, the stock price spiked ten percent on that news. Um, a lot of Wall Street analysts adjusted their price targets 
accordingly. So it's an interesting situation where you have a company that has acknowledged through and through that they are not doing well at all with this major acquisition. But through some, who's gonna buy it. through some of this <laughs> other news, um, you know, like the Jana Partner stake, their stock's trading pretty well. It's up forty percent in the past year, actually, and. It, Including that ten percent spike, right? Uh, when the due to the recent Jana Partners news, and it just seems kind of odd considering how a major segment in the company is struggling so so much. I the past year, I guess Wall Street's just thinking that uh, things are going to get shaken up and they'll turn the ship. Well, yeah, they did, you know, and they had the new CEO start earlier this year, so. Um, a big focus for him has been how do we write this ship essentially right so maybe it seems like the investors are very bullish on the fact that the company has been really receptive they've said we are happy to work with Jana partners and you know the activist investor base to make sure that you know our vision for this company is aligned but it didn't take long at all for this uh, for some changes to come through yeah with this announcement and what do you think now about for the stock? Um, I think a lot of the uh, any kind of upside is kind of gone now. Um, everything's twenty twenty in hindsight, of course. But I mean, you got uh, you know, Gunnar is trading at twenty times this year's current. Earn- I mean, who am I to say? Oh yeah, this thing should definitely be trading at twenty five or thirty times. I I can't, I could not say that. So, well, the thing is, like for a company in major transition mode like this, where you don't know, you know, they're basically completely restructuring again by dropping right. this business. It's uncertain. And who's to say it'll work? <laughs> you know, I do think it's a good thing they're going to be able to dedicate essentially more resources. They can spend more on advertising and new product development for these better, stronger performing segments. But there's no guarantees. Right. So I'm just really surprised, like for a company that's been struggling like this, that has. Traded up so much in the past year. I think, really, for investors, somebody who's thinking, "Hey, maybe I should get into the stock to th- maybe stop and think what you know, maybe wait to see how the this reorganization comes through, how well it, they're able to do." Wise words. Very cool. Well, thank you for your thoughts, Vince. I'll talk to you next week. Cool. Thank you, Sean. That is it for us, Wolves. But before we go, I wanted to make everybody aware of a very special offer. If you found this conversation informative and you'd like more stock picks from The Motley Fool, the Stock Advisor newsletter may be the service for you. It is our award-winning newsletter, started more than 10 years ago by Tom and David Gardner. We're offering the lowest price out there for our industry-focused listeners. It is $129 for a two-year subscription to Stock Advisor. You'll get two stock recommendations every single month with insight from our team of analysts. Just go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of this deal. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And if you have any questions or comments for Industry Focus, we'd love to hear from you. Just email us at focus.fool.com. Again, that is focus.fool.com. And as always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Vincent Shen, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>